We're going to jump into the fourth and final sermon in this series titled, What You Need to Know About the World. We've been sort of, um, sort of introducing ourselves to the Gospel of John, because that's where we plan on uh, being this fall and this winter and, and even into next year. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John together as, uh, as our sermon series. And so, but I kind of got us into these first 18 verses of John, which is known as John's prologue, where he sort of introduces his book. And I use that as an opportunity uh, to sort of, I'm sort of using his prologue as a launching board into some important topics that I think you need to understand in order to appreciate the message of the rest of the book. In addition to that, I think there are important topics that you need to understand in order to interpret properly what's happening in the world today. And so this is what we've talked about so far. We've talked about God, creation, sin, and today we talk about our final subject, salvation. In week one, when we were talking about God, we, we just noted some of the things that John tells us in these first few verses that he reminds us of about God's existence and his character. One, that God is eternal. In the beginning is how he starts his gospel. In the beginning, God has been around forever. He was there in the beginning. He was the one who caused everything that is to come into existence. God is triune. We see that in the first 18 verses of John's gospel as well. That there's more than one person to the Godhead. And scripture makes, makes it clear throughout the New Testament and even in the Old Testament that God is actually triune, that there are three persons to what we call the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about the fact that God is good. He's good. His character is good. People question, especially when you're experiencing the types of things we're experiencing in 2020, is there a good God out there? Like, how can all of this bad stuff happen if there's a good God? And we wanted to reaffirm that he is indeed good. And there's another explanation for all of the bad stuff that happened, which was last week. Uh, also, when we talked about God, we talked about the fact that he's glorious. And next week, next week as we kind of uh, transition out of this four-part series into just looking at the Gospel of John and studying what the Gospel of John says, that's one of the first things we're going to talk about. Because it comes up again and again throughout John's Gospel, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. What does it mean that God is glorious? So we talked a little bit about that. That was week one. And then we talked about creation. Okay, so God exists. He's good. He's, he's glorious. He's all of these things. So what, what does that have to do with us and what's going on? Well, we are all part of his creation. God created the world and everything that exists to reveal himself, to show what he's like, and to invite us into a relationship with him. So what's the problem? Last week we talked about sin. Sin separates, we said. Sin separates us from each other. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from the creation that we live in. Sin separates us ultimately from life. And we look fairly closely at the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when the first sin came in. And we see evidence of all four of those areas of separation taking place. 
They're immediately separated from God. They hide from him. They're ashamed. They're immediately separated from each other. They're ashamed to be in each other's presence, and they actually cover themselves up. For the first time in their life, they have this need, this desire to cover themselves up because sin has brought shame, which separated Adam and Eve from each other. We see that they're separated from God's original plan for creation. Creation, which God created good. We see that again and again in the creation account. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. Everything he created was good. But as soon as sin entered, creation became marred. And man is separated from creation. It becomes difficult. What was originally good becomes harsh and hard. And ultimately, sin separates us from life. God created Adam and Eve to live forever in the Garden of Eden. He planted a tree called the Tree of Life. And as long as they ate from that tree, they would always live. And after they sinned, God said, no more will you eat from the Tree of Life. And he separated them from life. And then, of course, all of that brings us to the need for a solution A good God created a good world, which we have tainted with our own human sin. So we need salvation. We need a solution. And of course, that's what all of this is about. All of this is to help us understand that God has indeed provided salvation. So that's what we want to talk about today. The sermon today is titled, Jesus Saves. Let's look at John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 13. John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll begin reading. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But... To all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. What is God's solution to the problem of sin and the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of creation? It's that he sends his son. And though his son created the world, he was there. That's what, that's what verse 1 is all about. In the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the son. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was there, and he created everything through him. And yet when Jesus comes in the world, into the world, the world he created does not recognize him. That's unbelievable. The world that he created doesn't even recognize him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. 
Everyone who believes in his name, who are born, this idea of being born, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Being born of God is a significant teaching in the Gospel of John, one that we'll look at a little more in depth as we go today. So here's what I want to say. This is kind of the main idea of this sermon. You'll see this on the handout if you, if you care to follow along. Sin separates us from God. Jesus brings us back. That's, that's salvation, as simple as, simply as I can put it. That sin separates us from God. Through our sin and through the sin nature that we inherited from our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, sin has separated us from God. It has broken the the natural unity that we had with one another, the natural unity that we had with God, our creator, the natural unity that we should have with with the creation that we live in and the unity that we are intended to have with eternal life. Sin separates us from all of that, but Jesus comes and he brings us back. We see if, if, if you look... If you kind of just step back and look at the first 13 verses of John, you've got the Word, that's Jesus. You've got the witness, that's John. By the way, I think I've already said this, but the John in in verse uh, 6 is not the John who's writing the Gospel of John. Two different Johns, okay? That's not super important, but we'll try to keep that sorted out as we go through the Gospel. So you've got the Word, you've got the witness, which is John, and you've got the world, And how is the world going to respond to the word coming? How is the world going to respond to its creator showing up? Not going to recognize him. And not going to receive him. Ultimately going to reject him. But to those who do receive him, to those who do receive him, salvation comes. They receive eternal life. They receive that reconciliation back to one another and to God and to creation and to life. Sin separates us from God, but Jesus brings us back. So let's focus. I'm going to focus on verses 10 through 12, or 13 again. He was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The world didn't recognize him. His people, although they may have recognized him, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those ones, those ones he gave the right to become children of God. How do we come back to God? How do we come back into a right relationship with the God who created us? The God who created this world to reveal himself and to invite us into relationship with him? We come through Jesus. We come through the Son. We, we believe him, we receive him, we believe in his name, and we are thus then born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. We're born again. We're born again as children of God. Okay, so what I want to do with the rest of our time then is I want to look at a passage. So, so John sort of introduces that idea, right? And he's going to use the rest of his gospel to unpack that and flesh that out. But we're not going to go through the rest of John's gospel today. There is a place in Scripture where this gets fleshed out a bit more succinctly. In just a few verses, we'll see some of these ideas fleshed out. And so that's where I want to go. I want to go from John chapter 1 to 2 Corinthians 
If, you're, if you have a Bible in front of you, just keep turning towards the back. You'll come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who, who himself would meet Jesus and be born again and, and experience um, this idea of being Jesus, bringing us back to God. And he, he experienced this salvation. He writes this letter to a church in a city called Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. And it's Second Corinthians because it's the second of those letters that we have. He wrote more than two letters to the church at Corinth, but we have two of them. In verses, I said all that just to give you time to turn. Chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Okay, so he's kind of, if we start there, he's sort of picking up where John leaves off. You're born again, children of God through Christ. So Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Do you understand why it's important that we understand creation and why we talked about creation and before we talked about the gospel? Because our salvation and creation are, are very tightly related to one another. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. I mean, that's ultimately the need. Like, the old creation's broken. The old creation is separated from God. The old creation is marred by sin. What we need is new creation. Paul says that's what we have in Jesus. Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Verse 18, everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me just pause. Sometimes I like to just read and then talk. This time I just want to pause. I know it's a little harder to follow, but there's some things that, that I want to say as we go along here. Who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Jesus brings us back to God. That's the idea of reconciliation. That though we're separated by sin, Jesus reconciles us. He brings us back to God. Now, not only does he bring, like, so let's think of this individually for a moment, though we also want to think of it corporately, but individually, okay, so I'm brought back to God in Jesus. You, if you have believed, are brought back to God in Jesus. Those who have been brought back to God in Jesus are given what's called here the ministry of reconciliation, the task of going and bringing others back to God as well. Okay, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, I'm sorry, against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So this is God's plan to fix the world. What do you need to know about the world? This is, it's created by God who's good. It's broken by sin. Um, And the way that God is fixing this world is through reconciliation in Jesus Christ. God is not reconciling this world, or fixing this world, I'm sorry, through any other means. This includes includes political um, situations and leaders. This includes, um, I I don't don't know, the examples I'm thinking of I don't want to use, but like any way, okay, so everybody sees that the world is broken, and we probably all have different ideas of what it might take to fix it. What I'm saying is that God has just one idea, and it's, it's a really good one, 
And it's a really effective one. And in the end, it will completely fix everything that is broken. His idea on how to fix the world is through reconciling people to, back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who came, lived on this earth, and died for you and I. That's his plan of reconciliation. That's his plan to fix the world. Okay, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Ambassador is one who's sent out by somebody else to represent them and to represent their interests. So in this situation, God has sent us out to represent him, to achieve and to accomplish his will, reconciling people back to himself. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, That's, there's a, a lot there and it's really good stuff. So we're gonna unpack that a little bit. I wanna actually start at the end of that passage. If we take 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 as a passage, let me start at the end and sort of work backwards because at the end he gives the how. How is God fixing the world? How does he accomplish this mission of reconciling, of bringing people back to him? He does it this this way. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just read that a couple of times. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our our problem before God is sort of twofold. We have the debt of the sins that we commit which separate us from him. Okay, so, and if you step and think about that, that really makes a lot of sense. Like, a lot of people stumble over this and struggle with this, but like, if God is perfect and holy and in his presence, if, he, if he's going to remain perfect and holy, he cannot allow sinfulness in his presence, right? It's like, uh, maybe this is not a great example because of all this craziness going on in this world, but like a cop who's meant to represent the law and what is good and what is just, who allows bad things to happen in his presence is not a good cop, Right? Like a cop who's supposed to uphold the law just kind of winks at transgressions against the law and says, hey, that's okay. No, but he's not a good cop. A God who allows, who, who by duty must uphold righteousness and goodness and justice and holiness. If he allows bad things to happen in his presence, he's no longer a good God. Because those bad things that are happening in his presence are hurting the people who seek to live in his presence. So God cannot allow sin to exist. That's my point. He can't allow sin to exist. He must deal with sin. If eternity, if heaven, let me use that word, if heaven is going to be anything like what we hope it to be, there cannot be sin there. You just can't have sin in the presence of God in eternity or it won't be any good. It'll be no better than this. And who wants to do this forever? (laughs) So God must deal with sin. So here's the problem that we have. We commit sins. We just do. 
And so what God has to deal with is me and you. He's got to punish us. He has to find a way to penalize what we have done and to make sure that we never do it again. Or heaven won't be heaven. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So, this is verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus fixes our sin problem before God in two ways because there's two ways in which it needs fixed. I, I didn't finish that thought. So the one is that we have to deal with the debt. The other is that we have to somehow become no longer sinful people. If we hope to be with him forever, then we have to find a way to stop sinning. And I don't know about you, but like I've given that a pretty good go. <laughs> I've tried to get through even just a day without sinning against God. I can't do it. I don't have the ability to do that. So I've got two problems. I've committed sin, which separates me from God and demands that he punishes that and deals with it. And I'm not righteous. I'm not good. I can't be with him because I don't act like him. And if I'm there in this state, I've ruined it. That's what already happened. We've already ruined it. Okay, so we've got two problems. We're not righteous and we've committed sins. How does God solve these problems? This is the next thing on the handout. Jesus brings us back to God by living the righteous life that God requires and dying the atoning death that God requires. Two things Jesus does. He lives the righteous life. Okay, if you and I are going to live with God, we have to live righteously. We're not doing that. Jesus does it for us. Then he goes to the cross, taking our sin upon himself, allowing the penalty and the punishment for our sins to fall on his own body and his own soul. He takes it upon himself to pay the price for our sins. So I've got two problems. I have this payment, this debt that I owe God because of the sins I've committed, and I have a lack of righteousness that would permit me to be in his presence. Two problems. Jesus fixes them both. He lives a righteous life that would allow him to be in God's presence, and then he says, here, I give this to you. I give you my righteousness. See what, it, see what it said in verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why do I need to become the righteousness of God? Because without the righteousness of God, I cannot be near him. So Jesus lives that righteous life and he says, here, take this. Act like you did it. <laughs> It's scandalous. Like, we didn't, we didn't live righteously before God, but God sees us as if we did because Jesus did. And then he says, here, this is for you. And then the other thing, we see that in verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. That's the punishment that he takes upon. Jesus committed no sins. He never sinned. He had zero debt before God. He had no penalty to pay. The penalty he was paying was yours and it was mine. It was the sins of the world that he died on the cross for. 
And so this is what theologians call double imputation. I don't care if you remember that word, but I really want you to understand the concept. Double imputation is that the exchange, that when we come to Jesus and believe in him, there's an exchange that happens. We give him our sin, which he takes and pays for on the cross, and then he gives us his righteousness. And so my debt goes away with him, and his righteousness becomes mine. And now God can let me in his presence, so to speak. I can be reconciled to him. I'm back in good relationship with him and in good standing with him because I've received the gift of Jesus' righteousness. This is an unbelievable exchange. There is nothing to compare it to in all of creation. Like the, the imbalance of what we're giving to Jesus Versus what he's giving to us. We give him our debt. Our payment. The payment owed for our sin. The penalty that somebody has to pay. For what we've done. He takes that and he says. Here's the righteousness. That you failed to achieve for yourself. I'm giving it to you as a gift. I can't think of anything to compare that to. Like if if I were to say give me. Give me the, the least valuable thing that you have on you right now. <laughs> like, I don't know, pull some lint out of your pocket. And, and I would say, hey, here's what I'm going to give you in exchange for that. I'm going to give you $100 billion. You'd be like, that's crazy. This is worthless. Not only is it worthless, it's offensive. It's filthy. You, you shouldn't keep this. Like, you should dispose of it. But I'll take it. I'll do the deal, right? That doesn't even begin to compare to what we're saying Jesus does for us. He takes our sin, the debt that that should separate us from God eternally. And he says, I'll take that. And he marches toward the cross. Carrying your sin. I love the place in the gospel where it says, knowing his time had come, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He determined willfully to take our sin and pay the price himself. He subjected himself to every sort of punishment imaginable in the flesh. His, his friends, his, fo- his followers, his closest friends abandoned him, denying they even knew him. Sinful men who had no place judging the Son of God cast judgment upon him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They made fun of his message. They made fun of everything that he had come to do. They beat him. Physically, they tore pieces of his beard from his face. They beat his back until there was barely any flesh left. And then they nailed him back against rugged wood. And they said, hang here till you die. 
when verse 21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. That's what Paul's talking about. The one who least deserved to die, died for you. And he did it on purpose. And he did it because he wanted to save you. And that life that he lived on earth, where he perfectly obeyed and enjoyed the Father and did everything that that was commanded by the righteousness of God, he lived for you. He did that so that after dying on that cross and then a couple of days later rising from the dead, he could give this gift that we call salvation to all who would believe in his name, to all who would receive him. That's what he did. That's incredible. That's what we call amazing grace, that Jesus would take our payment on himself and give us what we least deserve, his righteousness, so that we could be brought back to God, so that we could be reconciled to God. This is what we mean by salvation. That Jesus did this, that this double imputation, this exchange of our sin for his righteousness takes place in the life of every single person who says, Jesus, I believe you did that for me and I trust in you for salvation. That's the gift of salvation of eternal life. So let me, okay, that I wanted to explain what salvation is. That's why I wanted to start at the end of that passage. Now let's go back to the beginning because I want to point out a couple of things I'll try to do this relatively quickly. I want to point out a couple of things about salvation. Since, since that's the topic this week, I want to make sure we understand a few things. One, um, salvation is exclusive. What I, what I mean by that is that only those who are in Jesus have it. There's only one way to get salvation. It's exclusive to those who do what John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 said, that those who believe and receive Jesus. Salvation only comes one way. Paul said, and I'm going to stick in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 for a second, uh, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. If anyone is in Christ... If anyone is not in Christ by implication, and we'll see that explicitly stated in other places that we'll look at in a second. If anyone is not in Christ, he is not a new creation. He's still the old man, the old sinful human. He has not received salvation. He has not been born again. He is not a new creation. He will pay for his sins himself through eternal separation from God. He will remain separated from one another, from God, from creation, from life. He'll never be reconciled. By. The only way is through salvation in Jesus. That's what I mean by when I say salvation is exclusive. Let me just show you real quick a couple of passages that you're probably familiar with. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. By the way, this is completely fair. I get... I don't get it bothers me that people would see this as unfair. What is unfair about this? I mean, Jesus is the only one who did what I just described. No other religion offers anybody who has ever done anything like that for you. So it's 
perfectly fair that this is the only way to get to salvation. Why should somebody get to heaven? Why should somebody get reconciled? Why should somebody be reconciled to the Father, not through Jesus, but through, I don't know, good works or observing some sort of traditions? Or why should that count? The only way that makes any sense is what we've just described, that Jesus takes the penalty for our... Nobody else offers a solution for those problems but Jesus. So that's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 13 says it this way. First uh, John being a different book in the Bible than John. They're come closer to the end, and they're letters written by the Apostle John. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. That's the simple message of the gospel. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's just simple. If you have Jesus, you have salvation. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have salvation. He's the only way to get it. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's comforting people with this. He's saying, if you got Jesus, don't worry about it because you got life. If you have the Son, you have life. Okay, salvation is exclusive. Salvation is inclusive. Uh, Contradicting myself a bit here, but let me tell you what I mean. Meaning that through salvation, God is restoring all of the aspects of his creation that have been destroyed or marred by sin. What's inclusive about salvation is, or, or, or perhaps you could say it's holistic, it's complete. Everything that has been destroyed by sin is fixed, is restored through salvation. Let me make sure I'm clear. that I don't mean instantaneously. It's not like you get saved and everything goes back to the Garden of Eden. That's not what I mean. Salvation is progressive and there, is, there are elements of our salvation that will not be complete until one, some, some of which won't be complete until we die and, and leave this earth. And others that even then won't be complete until the end of all things has taken place. And God has brought this, this world to an end as we know it and, and brought forth a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So salvation fixes all of the things that are broken by sin. We're separated from each other, separated from God, separated from creation, separated from life. Salvation addresses each of those. But that does not mean that instantaneously they're all good. But progressively they are. Like progressively my relationships with other people are improving because of salvation. Progressively my relationship with God has drastically improved because of salvation and is continuing to improve. Even my relationship with creation, as, you know, as American Christians uh, caught up in a bit of a political war over how we should view the, the climate and the world and all of that, we sort of tend to take extreme sides when in reality, you know, God has created this world and he has placed us as stewards as managers over this creation. We are to take care of it. We are to improve it and make it better. We are to utilize creation. And, and, and that could include things uh, like taking parts of creation and doing things with them that improve human existence on the earth. I, I, don't, I, don't, 
I don't really want to debate this, but that could include like things like burning coal or something. That may or may not be an example of good stewardship, but the idea is that we're stewards. We're managers of creation. And as such, we ought to take responsibility for it and do good things with it. The problem is, is we can't agree on what are good things to do with it. I understand that. But the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we're reconciled back to creation and we are to be good stewards of it. And ultimately, we're reconciled back to life. So salvation is inclusive in that it addresses all of those issues. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Obviously, what that doesn't mean is that like, your body disappears and a new one appears. What that means is that you've been born again, that there's a new life growing within you now and transforming you. And you are a new creation. The old has gone away. See, the new has come. Okay, and then finally, salvation is our mission. Salvation is exclusive. Only those who are in Jesus have it. Salvation is inclusive. It addresses all of the four areas that sin has separated us from. And then salvation is our mission. We live to declare and demonstrate this plan of God's redemption. We live to declare and demonstrate this plan of God's redemption. This is what's really cool about 2 Corinthians 5. If we look specifically at 18, 19, and 20. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we, who? We are ambassadors for Christ. Who are the ambassadors for Christ? Raise your hands. It's us. Us. We're his ambassadors. Not some, he hasn't given this responsibility to somebody else. He's given it to you and he's given it to us. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. He's making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God creates in sin and salvation. God creates this world. God exists. God creates this world to reveal himself, to invite people into relationship with him. Sin screws it all up. Salvation comes to put it back together, but to put it, honestly, to put it back together better than it was before. How is God getting all of this work done? How is he bringing people back to himself? Through us, through the church, through you as an individual, through us, Corporately, we are ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's us. That's his plan. Between you and I, it's a terrible plan. (laughs) But it's his plan. And it really is a good plan. I just say that jokingly. I mean, you know, if you you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and, and, and you just kind of recite this reality yourself like hey God's plan to save the world is that I go out as an ambassador you might be tempted as I am to think not a good plan <laughs> let's let's go back to the drawing board and come up with something better nonetheless that's that's his plan and guess what 
He's been doing it for 2,000 years. And it must be working at least a little bit because we're all sitting here. And all of us who have believed in Jesus and received him, we have been reconciled because, not because some superheroes existed that brought the gospel to us, but because normal men and women who have been redeemed by Jesus have carried out this ministry of reconciliation. They've shared the gospel They've helped build the church. They've reached out into their community. Some of them have taken off from home to go to other lands to spread the gospel. The plan is working. His ambassadors are getting the job done. Not as well as we would all hope. (laughs) And I think that's something for us to really think about. Can we be doing, does it work? Yes. Can we be doing better? Yes. One of the things that's been hard for me to deal with over these past few months is that our world has come to a place where people are more open than ever before to consider their life, to reconsider their life, to reconsider their worldview, to reconsider what they believe to be true. And yet, more often than not, I think the people of God have been lulled asleep. I've seen it in my own heart, in my own life. I've seen it in our church. I've seen it in probably a dozen other pastors that I've talked to about how their churches are doing. And here's an opportunity that that perhaps is the answer to our prayers. Like how many of us have prayed, God, bring revival. God, save my loved ones, save my coworkers, save people in this. How many of us have prayed that? And then he's like, okay, let's, let's do this. Pandemic, people are open. People are asking important questions about life. And we're like, oh, I really, I really like, you know, just this, how the pace has slowed down. And this and that, or what, I feel like we've just been lulled to sleep in the midst of perhaps the greatest opportunity for evangelism we might ever see in our lifetime. I don't mean that as a rebuke. I mean that as a, let's look in the mirror and say, can we do this better? Yes, absolutely. I was so encouraged yesterday by the work that Brittany and Travis did to get these Halloween costumes out. We had like, I don't know, like 80 Halloween costumes set up for kids yesterday. And one family after another, they brought these little kids who, many of whom I assume um, weren't planning on going out and paying $30 for a costume that they're going to wear once or twice and don't have the means to do so. And and then in, in the midst of that situation, here's God's people just doing God's work through something as simple and as silly as giving out Halloween costumes. You don't, have to, you don't have to be able to preach a sermon or lead worship or whatever to do this. God's ambassadors work in all kinds of ways. God's ambassadors plead this message of reconciliation through the way we live our lives day in and day out. And by, by doing simple things like packing together a little turkey dinner and delivering it to somebody's home in the name of Jesus's love. I mean, God is doing his work. You don't have to go on the corner with a bullhorn. And perhaps that might not even be a good idea, depending on the audience. But what you can do is you can love and you can get involved and you can help build 
God's church. We say it again and again and again. There are 150,000 people within 20 minutes of where we're at right now. 150,000. We've got plenty to work, plenty of work to do. Now, we've got to be creative in how we get to them and how we reach them because most of them aren't sitting around going, boy, I hope somebody comes to tell me about Jesus today. But all of them are living human beings created in the image of God who need to be reconciled to God. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if they believe and trust in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that's going to save their soul. Nothing. So salvation is our mission We live to declare and demonstrate this plan of God's redemption. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Get ready to lead us in a couple more songs of worship. As we do that, though, as we worship, let's take some time. Part of worship is reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. I talked most of our time today about what Jesus has done for us. So as we worship, let's take some time to reflect on that. But part of worship, I think, also is preparing ourselves to obey. Preparing ourselves to go out as ambassadors, as missionaries into the world that God has placed us in. And I think we desperately need to give some consideration to that today. That we prepare our hearts in these next 10 minutes or so that we still have together. Prepare our hearts that when we walk out that door... We embrace this idea that we are Christ's ambassadors. That God is making his plea through us. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. Be reconciled to God. May our lives scream. Be reconciled to him. Come and receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus Your word says that we are to make that plea with how we live our lives and with the words that we speak. That's why we say our mission is to declare. We must open our mouths and speak, but also to demonstrate. We must with our hands and with our feet and with our lives, with our resources, with our time and with our energy, we must demonstrate that Jesus loves this community. We must demonstrate that Jesus loves every man, woman, and child. That those 150,000 people, that every last one of them is created in your image to know you and to have an eternal relationship with you. That though sin has broken that, Jesus is greater than sin. Help us to take that message out these doors. To not be content to just come in here and celebrate it for a few minutes and then live the rest of our weeks like, man, I'm just so glad I'm saved. May we be glad we're saved, but may we be on mission as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.